Heavenly Father, we pray that now you would speak to us according to your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What can miserable Christians sing? That's the question theologian Carl Truman asked nearly two decades ago as he considered the state of the evangelical church. He noted the decline of the language of lament within Christian circles and the seeming assumption that to be Christian is to always feel happy. Certainly, as Christians, we have great cause for happiness and joy. We have been saved by our Redeemer. What we just sang about is true. We have a great deliverer. And yet, as his article notes, this assumption is a strange development. For as Christians, we follow a crucified Savior. The Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. Why then are Christians so seemingly obsessed with feeling happy? Truman contends that perhaps it's because we've not attended to those parts of the Bible that dwell on, that make mention of, and let us soak in the reality of sin and suffering in this world. Places like the Psalms and the Lament Psalms in particular, the Book of Lamentations, Jeremiah. I wonder how this idea strikes you. Can there be such a thing as godly, miserable Christians? Is the totality of our experience one of joy? Or would perhaps our Afghan brothers and sisters tell us there's something else in the Christian life? This morning we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew, so I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. As we consider the initial opposition and persecution Jesus faces, you'll find that on page 808 of the Bibles provided. It'd be helpful to have that in front of you, so let me encourage you to, to grab that if you don't have a Bible. So far in the Gospel according to Matthew, we've seen the evangelist highlight the kingly identity of Jesus. So in chapter 1, Matthew reiterates, he paints this glorious picture of Jesus as the Davidic king. That he would come, he's come now as the long-awaited Messiah to assume David's throne. And then in the past two weeks, we've seen really the incredible circumstances around Jesus' birth. You know, first, the Virgin Mary gives birth to him, and then second, these wise men from the east come worshiping him, giving him their gifts and treasures. And thus we arrive at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Despite murderous opposition, God delivers Israel's deliverer. So read with me Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 13 to 15, entitled, The Flight to Egypt. And our passage begins with a familiar character, an angel of the Lord dispatched to Joseph by a dream. He comes with a simple yet urgent message. Rise, take the child and his mother, go to Egypt until I tell you to come back. Here we begin to see that this baby, Jesus, well, he's not going to lead a charmed life. You'd be forgiven if after two chapters you had initially thought Jesus might lead a a comfortable life, right? I mean, he had royal lineage. He had a miraculous birth. As an infant, there are people traveling across the empire to, to worship him and visit him and bring him gifts. Uh, was this to be the pattern of his life? Well, not at all. The angel gives the reason for his command there at the end of verse 13. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And thus we see that the pattern for Jesus' life will, will not be one of comfort and ease, but of persecution and opposition. From Jesus' birth all the way until his death, his life was constantly under threat. So here as a baby, Herod wanted to destroy him. And then at the very end of his life, in chapter 27, Matthew will write, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. It's the same word. What was so undeniable about this Jesus that he evoked such an extreme response from others? Well, it's what Matthew's been telling us. It's what Curtis has been telling us. It's the fact that Jesus is the king. And you know who that is a threat to? Everyone else who wants to be the king. Whether Herod or the religious leaders, those in authority recognize that Jesus claimed to be and to represent a higher power. He claimed to outrank them. And so they would do everything in their power to get away, do away with him, including murder. But here in verse 14, Joseph, Jesus, and Mary escape Herod's murderous intentions when they flee that very night to Egypt. You know, it's interesting, Joseph is dreaming, this angel appears, and then he flees at night. I think it's, the implication is he fled that night. You know, he has the dream, the angel comes to him, and that very night, he packs things up and they say, we're going. Joseph is a model of faithful obedience to God's commands. When the truth of God's word comes to us, we should be like Joseph. 
and obey immediately and urgently. And, and then in verse 15, Matthew gives us the theological interpretation of what was happening. Why did God send this family to Egypt? Look there. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And here we arrive near the heart of our passage. As Matthew gives us the interpretive clue to understanding who Jesus is and the significance of these events surrounding him. You know, why was Jesus seemingly always persecuted and opposed? Well, because this has always been the pattern for God's Son. You see the quotation, out of Egypt I called my son, is from Hosea 11.1. It's written hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrival, and if you went this afternoon and you read Hosea 11, and you studied it really hard, or if you studied it for a few seconds, you would realize that it's not a prediction about the coming Messiah. You won't find a travel log or travel itinerary for the coming king. That's not what Hosea 11.1 is about. Instead, in Hosea 11, God is recounting Israel's history when he led them out of Egyptian slavery and into the promised land. And so he calls Israel his son. All right, well, how in the world does, does God saying, yeah, I, I saved Israel out of Egypt, lead Matthew to say, this is fulfilled in Jesus' going to and from Egypt? The answer is that Israel and Jesus both fulfilled the same role in redemptive history. In God's plan of salvation, they both had the same office, namely, Son of God. You see that in the Hosea quotation, right? Out of Egypt I called my son. Indeed, this theme of sonship is woven throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis 1, when the Lord God makes Adam in his image and likeness. This doesn't mean that, you know, Adam physically looked like God. But rather, Adam was to image God's character. Adam was to be a kind of son of God. And we know this because in Genesis 5.1, just a few chapters later, it states, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. And named him Seth. So sonship is right at the beginning of the Bible, just as Seth was Adam's son because he's in his father's likeness and image. So Adam is God's son because he's in God's image and likeness. This is what every human being as image bearers in some sense was to have, but Adam uniquely had. This is confirmed when Luke in Luke 3.38 refers to Adam as the son of God, lowercase s. But then after Adam and Eve sin, after the rebellion against God, this, this role of son, well, it transfers to Israel. After they disobey God's word, after Adam and Eve fail to rightly image God and his character, the Lord establishes corporate Israel as his son. So in Exodus 4.22, the Lord will tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go. This is the son, Israel, that Hosea 11.1 is referring to. But the story of sonship doesn't end with Israel and the Exodus. Once Israel established a monarchy, 
the king came to represent and epitomize the nation. So the, son, the role of son, which transferred from Adam to corporate Israel, now transferred from corporate Israel to the Davidic king. Okay, so in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, the Lord promised to King David, I will establish the throne of your offspring's kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right, so you're tracking, we're, we're tracing this theme through the Bible because Matthew is picking up on this theme. That's what Hosea 11.1 1 is about. Adam was God's son, corporate Israel was God's son, the Davidic king was God's son, and can you guess who Jesus is? The son of God. When the Lord Jesus shows up, he is the true and final son of God. He fulfills all that the prior sons of God pointed to. And it's in this sense that Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, because Jesus is the true Israel, as Israel was a pointer to the true son. Just as God led his son Israel to flee from danger in Canaan, namely a famine, toward safety in Egypt, so too the Lord led his son Jesus from danger in Canaan, namely murder, to safety in Egypt. And then God called his sons out of Egypt. The Lord led them out of exile and refugee status in Israel to the promised land. And then just as Israel went through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea, so too Jesus enters the waters of baptism. And then just after the Red Sea, what happens? Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years, and then Jesus goes into the desert to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. They are both of God's sons were tempted to distrust their heavenly father's provision of bread. Friends, the parallels only continue on from there, and they continue because Matthew is noting a pattern of events with God's sons, with Israel, and with God's true son, Jesus. Again, because Jesus is the true son of God, this means not only is he the true Israel, he's even the true David. Just as David was persecuted by the existing king of Israel, Saul, so that he had to flee from his home, so that he had to flee to a foreign country for refuge, well, so too Jesus' life follows a similar pattern of events. Are all these correspondences mere coincidences? Well, according to Matthew, no. Rather, the pattern of events that surrounded God's previous sons, from exile and exodus to opposition and persecution, will likewise apply to Jesus. Because as we'll hear even more clearly next week from Matthew chapter 3, in, in the waters of baptism, God states of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. To be the Son of God did not exempt Jesus from suffering. It rather guaranteed it. Let's turn now to our second section, found in verses 16 to 18, entitled, The Rage of Herod. We read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. As Curtis mentioned last week, Herod was a notoriously brutal man. He's known to have killed multiple family members in his immediate family, and we see that murderous streak continue in our verse here. Bethlehem was likely populated with about 1,000 residents, and so the number of 
male boys, children under the age of two, was anywhere from 10 to 30. Such is the shocking evil displayed by Herod that he sentences all these little boys to die. Friend, perhaps you're new to Christianity, and you've often thought of Christianity and the religion of Jesus as sweet and kind, but ultimately unrealistic and naive about the pains and horrors of this world. Maybe as you look at world history, or as you look at your own past, you think, I, there's no way God and Jesus can reckon with that evil. Well, verses like Matthew 2.16 go far in disabusing us of the notion that Christianity is mere pie in the sky. Now, the Bible is intensely realistic about the depths of human depravity, about the horrors of human sin and the pain and suffering that results from it. Christianity is not an escapist distraction from suffering and sin. It is rather God's answer to it through the suffering and salvation of Jesus Christ. Yet what would, what would drive Herod to such vicious and wanton disregard for human life? Well, friends, the answer is shockingly pedestrian. It was selfish ambition, greed, love of power and privilege. And thus what is so shocking is not only Herod's actions, which are so unthinkably evil, but that the very motivation and heart behind it is found in our daily lives. We lie to promote our name and protect our agenda. We cut down fellow employees to make ourselves look better. We hoard God's resources because we just can't let them go. And while you may be aghast that I'm comparing yours and mine, our petty sins against Herod's atrocity, in truth, it's Jesus who makes the connection between our evil thoughts, which might not seem like a big deal, and evil actions, the ones we like to think we're innocent of, like murder. In Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses away during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say that you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Friends, in effect, Jesus is saying this. The root of Herod's murder is the anger and fury that you and I so often exhibit. Yes, we may not have literally murdered, but we have the seed of murder in our very hearts and so when we consider these Jewish mothers and their terrible weeping and the killing of these little boys, I trust that you are as revolted as I am. I trust that you long for justice. You want Herod to be held accountable. The murder is wrong. It's damnably wrong. But my guess is, if you're like me, you, well, you don't want God to judge yours and mine, our murderous thoughts, my unrighteous anger. But friends, because God is judge and not Herod, Herod does not get to state and set the standard of righteousness. 
Because you and I, we are not the judge. We do not set the standard for righteousness. It is God. He is not partially holy. He is not mostly righteous. He is holy, holy, holy. Completely righteous. And thus we all, due to our sins, deserve God's punishment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all, in Jesus' words, are liable to judgment. And that's what makes Jesus so amazing. That's what makes this little boy so life-giving and hope-giving. Because he grew up to live a life of perfect obedience, of perfectly loving his neighbor as himself, never being unrighteously angry or murderous in his thoughts, never greedy, never selfishly pursuing what was good for him but bad for others. He alone perfectly loved God and loved neighbor. And so he alone deserved God's blessing and favor, and yet he went to the cross. He willingly went to suffer in our place, to bear our punishment, and to die as our substitute. For all those who trusted in him, in his wrath-bearing, sin-atoning death. And then three days later, he rose from the grave proving that he was innocent, proving that he was king, proving that for whoever trusted in him, they would be saved. Right, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you want God to be a God of justice? If not, then Herod's crimes and oppression go unanswered and unpunished. I guess it really does pay to be bad. But if yes, are you prepared to pay for your own sins? Oh friend, turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Be clothed in His righteousness, and He will forgive you of all your debts. Back in Matthew 2, the result of Herod's violence is terrible pain, isn't it? This is what our sin does. Verse 17 tells us that this sequence of events fulfilled Jeremiah's words. That a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Back in Jeremiah 31, the, the mothers in Ramah were weeping because their sons, their boys, were being taken away into exile to Babylon. Rachel is here the symbolic mother of Israel, weeping over her lost children. And it seems that Matthew is making a connection between the Jewish mother's mourning in Jesus' day with the mourning in Jeremiah's day. The events in Bethlehem, again, continue a pattern that Matthew sees has already happened. It's already happened, and it's still happening. Jewish mothers, again, are weeping over their sons in the face of persecution and danger from God's enemies. We saw this at the beginning of Israel's history in Exodus 1 when, when Pharaoh decrees that the baby boys are to be drowned. To the mothers in Jeremiah's day and then the weeping now over Herod's murders, the pattern of weeping over lost children continues. And so before we leave this second point, I, I do want to pause and consider what it means to lament. As Christians, we love to rejoice, don't we? We have reason to rejoice 
at every moment. We've been saved by a great God. We have been loved by a great Savior. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the hope of heaven. We have brothers and sisters around us. There's a reason why the Bible says rejoice at all times. And yet, that's not the only emotion in the Christian life. That's not the only experience. I want us to pause for a moment and consider what it means to lament because it is a part of the Christian life. If you look at the Psalms, nearly half of the entire Psalter are Psalms of lament and grief. So put another way, grief is not peripheral to the life of the people of God on earth. We all experience it. And so in a gathering this large, I can only guess that some of you are lamenting. Whether it's the loss of a job or the consequences of sin, whether it's the constant pain of loneliness, the toll of sickness and disease, or the finality of death. Christians are not immune to pain. So if that's you this morning, let me encourage you to do four things. If that's you and you're lamenting, you're, let me encourage you to do four things. Number one, turn to God in your pain. This is perhaps the hardest of all the steps. Suffering can cause us to question the, the goodness and the reality and the presence of God. Prayer and time with God's word can often be more painful after great sorrow. And so the temptation is to withdraw, to run away from God. But friend, let me encourage you, when trials come, not to run away, but to run to him. He longs to hear from his children. Second, when you come to God, make your complaint known to him. If you look at the Psalms of Lament, what you'll continually see is the psalmist openly complaining, making their complaint known to God. They don't hide their pain or their confusion or their doubt. They honestly recognize it. We, we have a God who's a lot stronger than you and I. We can come to him and be honest about where we are. So then third, when we do that, plead God's promises. We openly lament and grieve and complain even. But yet then we turn to God's word and we, we plead his promises. We turn to places like Psalm 23 or Romans 8 and recite God's promises to ourselves because he has made great and very precious promises. We can call on God to act according to them. He loves to do so. And so then fourth and finally, we choose to trust. When faced with the reality of suffering on the one hand and unimaginable pain and sorrow, and the truth of God's word. We don't normally know how they mesh, how both can be true. And yet it is faith to take God at his word. And so it is our job to choose to trust, to lean into God saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, if you'd like to think more about what it means to lament as a Christian, let me encourage you to Grab a book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop. I'm sure the church would be happy to buy you a copy. I'd be happy to buy you a copy. It's a wonderful book in thinking through how as Christians 
we recognize the sorrow and pain in the world and even in our own lives and how we respond as Christians. Let's turn now to our final section found in verses 19 to 23 entitled The Return to Israel. In verse 19 we read, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Though Herod had plotted Jesus' demise, God preserved his son, and it's ironically Herod who dies first. And this probably goes without saying, but it's not exactly normal to have dreams populated by angelic messengers. So why all the angels? Well, in short, it's likely the same reason why Jesus' ministry will include so many conflicts with demons as he casts them out from the sick and the hurting. And it's not as if there's a demon behind any sickness any more than there is an angel behind every dream. No. Why is the spiritual realm so seemingly active during Jesus' life and ministry? Well, it's that Christ's advent has brought the spiritual warfare of heaven down to earth. It's always taking place on earth, but he's brought it to new and heightened proportions. It's now less covert and more overt. As Christ has come on earth to do battle against Satan, so two spiritual beings take an unusually public and prominent role during Jesus' earthly ministry. And so then in verse 21, Joseph continues to be a model of faithful obedience to God's word. You know, men and husbands, notice that it's Joseph in particular that's, that's charged with caring for his family. As a husband, he's called to lead and protect his wife and his child, He's summoned to obedience and the the blessings that will result to his family when he does so. There's a small snag in the plan in verse 22, right? Mary and Joseph and Jesus seem to head back to Judea, the region surrounding Bethlehem, when one of Herod's sons came there who is equally murderous. So the family withdrew, they head to the north, they go to Galilee when God warns them. And then our passage concludes with verse 23. Look there. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, this is the third time in our text that Matthew has cited an Old Testament prophecy. The only problem is it's not exactly clear what Old Testament prophecies Matthew is referring to. Okay, so if you notice in the ESV, which is in the Bibles provided, there's no quotation marks at the end of verse 23. It seems that Matthew has multiple passages in mind, and we know that because he refers to the prophets, plural, being fulfilled. It's the only time in Matthew he does that. So, you know, what could could Matthew have in mind? Scholars have two main interpretations. First, Matthew could be saying that he will be despised So he went to live in a despised place, namely Nazareth. The emphasis here would be on the continuing opposition that Jesus faces as the Son of God. The second interpretation is that Jesus will be called a Nazarene, which is a wordplay that sounds very similar to Old Testament texts that refer to the Messiah as a a natzer, a branch, who saves the house of Israel. All right, so to be honest, I went back and forth in my interpretation this week. You know, one time I think of one thing, then the next. And as of last night, I lean towards the second option. The reason the first interpretation doesn't seem to work is that Matthew doesn't say 
He was despised, so he went to Nazareth. He could have mentioned Jesus being scorned or looked down upon, but he doesn't do that. And the reason the second interpretation, I think, works better is that Matthew highlights the name of the city and then the name Jesus will be called. Do you notice that? Look again. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene. The emphasis isn't he went and lived in a bad part of town. The emphasis seems to be he went to live in a place called Nazareth. The name was important, that Christ would be called a Nazarene. And if this is the case, then Matthew is likely referring to Isaiah 11.1, which states, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, Natesar, very similar spelling to Nazarene, from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I think Matthew's referring to texts like this because what, you know, what's the very next story we get in Matthew? If you have a little you know, Bible, look at the heading, Matthew chapter 3. It's Jesus' baptism. And what happens at his baptism? The Spirit comes upon Jesus. And then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. So it seems that perhaps Matthew has that Isaiah 11.1 1 text in mind. And so then the significance of Jesus being a Nazarene is that, again, he is the new David. Isaiah 11.1 1 mentions the, the branch of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And so Isaiah and Matthew are saying, Jesus is the new David. Not only is the anointed king who suffers persecution from Israel's existing king, but he is the spirit-filled king who faithfully shepherds his people. All right, so what are we to make of all this? Let me, brief, let me briefly mention three applications and means of response as we conclude. Number one, study the Bible because it is God's word. I'll be honest, this is a challenging passage. On the surface, it's Jesus' travel itinerary. But then you start thinking, okay, what is Matthew doing with Hosea and Jeremiah? And is he citing Isaiah? And you start thinking, why, why is he doing that? Who is Jesus in light of these texts? And it was hard. It is hard. So when you, brother or sister, are confounded and confused by what you read in the Bible, let me encourage you with the words that Paul gives to his protege, Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Second, trust God because he is in control. In the midst of horrible suffering, in verses 17 and 18, in light of all the various things happening, I wonder if you noticed how pervasive God's involvement is in chapter 2. You know, God sent the star, which interested the wise men, which provoked Herod, which led to the flight of the Holy Family, and the slaughter of the children eventually. And God sent the angel to the wise men, to warn them to go a separate way, and the angel to Joseph twice. God is in no way passive in this drama. Now, he's very much active in protecting his son, fulfilling his plan. We don't often know the exact reasons, 
why God's plan takes the twisting, winding turns that it does. But we can be sure that God is wise and God is good. And so we should trust him and his plan. And so third and finally, love Jesus because he identifies with his people. Friend, I wonder how you would comfort Afghan Christians today who are on the run from the Taliban and from murderous persecution. You could certainly mention that God is in control, right? That you should trust him. You could also tell them that their Savior does not stand aloof and far off from their trials. No, he too was persecuted and exiled. He too was despised by the governing authorities as they sought his life. The true Israel, the true son of David, the true son of God, he knows what it means to be persecuted and oppressed. And he willingly came to identify with us, to save us from our sins, and to be our sympathetic savior so that we might respond with admiration and love. Let's go to him now in prayer.